Texas President Mirabeau Lamar felt the best approach to Mexico was a carrot and stick method backed up by his new fleet. In February 1839, Lamar sent envoy Barnard B. to Mexico to negotiate Texas recognition from the central government, which was then hard-pressed by General Antonio Canales' Federalist Revolt in the North. The government, however, refused to allow B. to set foot on Mexican soil. In November, as the Texas fleet was concentrating in Galveston, Lamar made a second attempt, dispatching James Treat, a citizen of Texas. This time, Mexico accepted the delegate, but the talks were doomed by Texas' insistence upon the Rio Grande as the border between the two countries, its push to run its southwestern border from El Paso to California, and the political climate under President Bustamante, which had hardened against recognition. As talks dragged on for months with no signs of progress, Lamar and Secretary of State Abner Lipscomb concluded that Mexico's negotiation with Treat were simply a ruse to keep the Texas Navy off the Mexican coast until Mexico could rebuild its forces. President Lamar decided that the time was right to backtreat and treat the Mexicans with what Theodore Roosevelt would later call the big stick. On June 3, 1840, President Lamar and his suite paid their respects to the flagship Austin, which saluted the president with 22 guns. Two days later, Secretary Lipscomb paid a similar visit and was received with 17 guns. The timing of these visits was not coincidental. Lamar was preparing orders to terminate Treat's negotiations within 10 days, unless Mexico City agreed to recognize Texas. By this time, Lamar had instructed Commodore Moore to begin preparations in earnest for a cruise along the Mexican coast and to determine the order of battle for the Texas fleet that would accompany him. It was high tide for the Texas Navy, and as the fleet prepared to set forth to sea, its commander looked every inch the mighty captain that he was. The fleet sailed north from the mouth of the Mississippi, beginning on July 22nd, Zavala leading the way. To the rural citizens of the poor frontier republic, the pride and treasure of Texas were about to sail onto the world stage in a terrific show of force. There were certainly larger fleets on the seas, and there were more advanced ones. But the five men of war that set forth under the command of Edwin Ward Moore that day represented the very best the young, bankrupt Republic of Texas could offer. A half century before Roosevelt's Great White Fleet and Britain's HMS Dreadnought, the flotilla that Commodore Moore led into the Gulf represented the hopes and aspirations of the young Republic and the idealistic and warlike president who led her. And that is from Lone Star Navy, Texas and the Fight for the Gulf of Mexico and the Shaping of the American West by Jonathan Jordan, 2007. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm joined by Joshua Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Thank you, Josh, for reading that passage. Do you want to jump into why you chose it for today's episode? Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, a couple of big reasons. One is that it's always exciting to read about the Texas Navy. Uh, you know, for spoilers, and, and people should read Jordan's book, uh, Lone Star Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, but for spoilers, what ends up happening is that this flotilla that gets led out by Commodore Moore actually ends up facing a, a British crude Mexican hired uh, fleet off of Campeche. Uh, and the Texas fleet ends up controlling for a brief time access to the to the Atlantic approaches to Mexico, which is extraordinary, an extraordinary feat for for Texas. And um, at the Battle of Campeche, they actually fight these, you know, mostly Royal Navy veterans, British Royal Navy veterans in superior vessels to a draw. I believe it's the only time 
in history that sail-powered wooden ships uh, defeat uh, steam-powered, uh, I believe, iron-hulled uh, ships. I don't think they were true ironclads. I think it was iron sheeting over the over the wooden uh, structure of the vessels. Um, but an amazing uh, uh, sort of underdog victory for the Texans uh, at sea that ends up resulting in uh, the exact strategic aim for which Mirabeau Lamar set them forth, which was a strategic diversion to Mexico. Mexico, of course, at the time was riddled with um, uh, division, secessionist uh, conspiracies. There was the Republic of the Rio Grande uh, that was briefly referenced uh, in the in the passage. Um, the attempted secession of the Yucatan actually ended up being about 70 years worth of war. It wasn't really wrapped up till the end of the Porfiriato in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, and so, and so, you know, this the, this effort by Texas to invest in a naval force and to achieve what they could never have achieved by force majeure on land, which is actually the, the strategic destabilization of Mexico, their principal foreign threat is an amazing story. And it ties directly into a lot of the issues that we face today yeah. when we too need to think uh, very comprehensively about strategy at the national level and our goals. Of course, our, our aim today is is the opposite of the Republic of Texas. We don't want to destabilize Mexico. We want to we want to stabilize it and unify it, you know, to the extent that we're able to lend uh, our good offices to that. Um, uh, but but nevertheless, that, that quality of thought needs to exist. It doesn't really in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah. The idea that that power needs to be backed by hard force is, uh, is, is seeping back into consciousness, but not fast enough. And so that's why I think this passage is interesting. No, that's awesome. And, and on that note, you know, since we're talking about strategy, let's use that to segue into Mexico. How do you think? Our strategy is going towards Mexico. I don't think we have a strategy toward Mexico. <laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, you're t talking about Washington D.C., I think I think Texas is is, is emerging with one, uh, but it's but it's just incredibly clear at this point that the Biden regime uh, has no real strategy except to beg the Mexican state uh, for relief from proximate and tactical level crises that they think threaten their own uh, political prospects within the United States. But a sense of stewardship of the nation or a desired end state, almost completely absent from policymaking. Right. And we as a state shouldn't have to have a strategy against Mexico, but we're compelled to, right? Here, here we are. Yes. A, a, a return to the uh, original concept of the republic, though, in which the states are uh, far more sovereign than not. Right. Yeah. Well, OK. So I do want to talk about Biden begging Mexico for help. But first, I want to talk to you about something that probably a lot of people missed. Um, on December 28th, when none of us were paying attention, the White House <laughs> issued this joint communique with Mexico that has created, I think, some tension between the two countries because the American version released it citing democratic decline as one of the reasons for heavy and irregular migration. Right. And then Mexico released their version and it didn't include that phrase. Right. So what ended up happening is the U.S immediately corrected it, uh, removed the phrase, and then um, came out and said that it was a mistake, and they called it, called it like a version control issue, right? Right, right. And so, that's one first way of to all, put it. Yeah, that's one way to put it. But yeah. first of all, this is really weird, because usually those like joint communiques are like very negotiated and looked at in depth before they are released, right? But in this case, I guess they had some sort of miscommunication. But what I found really fascinating is how quick the Biden administration or the White House was to, like, correct that error. And it just made me think, like, I want to get your thoughts on this. Are they just, like, trying to mask authoritarianism? Clearly, they know, as many of us do, that democratic decline is a reason for some heavy migration. We've seen it with Venezuela. We've seen it with a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. But Biden administration is showing us that they're very quick to bow down to other 
corrupt and anti-democratic regimes uh, because they're like we've, we just saw it in this example. Right. Right. So I'm just curious. Do you think that Biden is like scared of getting on Mexico's bad side? Like, what do you have to say about all this? Back in back in uh, summer 2023, so a million years ago, uh, <laughs> uh, TPPF CEO Greg Sindelar actually had uh, an op-ed in The Federalist. We'll include a link yeah. in, in, in the show I'll notes sure here. I'll make sure link it. Uh, uh, in which he he explicitly predicted that uh, that uh, AMLO in the Mexican state would use a migration crisis to essentially blackmail uh, Joe Biden and the and the regime in Washington D.C. as the 2024 elections approached, and that is exactly what is happening. That prediction mm-hmm. has been 100% vindicated. It didn't take I wouldn't say it took a, a ton of insight, you know, for us to perceive that, but uh, you know the fact that we were one of the few to do it, I think, really speaks to the uh, the, the absence of expertise in the field. There's certainly nobody in Washington D.C. who predicted it coming. Uh, uh, now, now we're seeing now we're seeing it fulfilled. 2024 is upon us. What happened at the end of December was that the U.S. Secretary of State actually went to Mexico City, uh, essentially to ask the Mexicans to please turn off the spigot as far as uh, human trafficking goes. You know, several million. I think 2023, I believe, was the largest year ever uh, for, for for illegal migration to the United States. And we yeah. have to understand what the numbers are. Given the apprehensions, uh, the apprehensions being themselves a fraction of encounters, the, the encounters themselves being a minority fraction. Again, the, we've said this before, but the, the rule of thumb is that you encounter only about 20 percent of those who try to enter. So, so, so you, tiny. I mean, you end up with a figure, an annualized figure of, uh, you know, anywhere between you know, five to 15 million individuals who illegally entered the United States and are now probably going to stay there. Um, uh, you know, you know, meet your new neighbors, right? I mean, who knows where they're from? Uh, who knows what their agenda is? But uh, and who knows who the networks are that traffic them here? Except, right. ex- except that they're all criminal. So uh, th- 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 there's an awareness, uh, an awareness driven in no small part by the complaints of Democratic big city mayors up north that uh, this is a threat to the reelection of the president in 2024. So the Secretary of State goes down, and the Mexicans have their price tag for it. You know, sure we can cut it off, which they can. They could cut it off at any time if they chose to, but they choose not to for two reasons. One, they know it's it's huge leverage against the United States. And the other, as we've discussed many times in the show, is that they themselves profit from the trafficking networks uh, and the criminal cartels that run this massive migration of millions, plus the remittances that then come back to Mexico and Latin America as a consequence. So uh, uh, the, the price tag exacted by the Mexicans uh, that we know about was this. We know that the Mexicans asked the federal government to shut down Texas attempts to control the border. Uh, Texas has had two major efforts. One has been the erection of physical barriers outside Eagle Pass. Uh, you know, we, we talked about that in a previous show. Federal federal personnel have since been, you know, litigating against the barriers, removing them. The mm-hmm. Mexicans have said, and I believe Amlo himself said at one of his Mañaneras, that that was done at Mexican state request. Uh, uh, so that's that's one episode. Another episode came uh, with this meeting between uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Mexican officialdom. You know, you know, you know, probably probably the usual suspects there uh, at SRE. Uh, but uh, but you know, announcing you know immediately after, I think it was literally the day after. I'll have to mm-hmm. double check that. Uh, that that uh, uh, after this communique, the, the federal government announced it was suing Texas, litigating against um, Texas SB4 from the 88th regular Texas legislative session. It which might have even been the same day. Might have been the same day. Yeah, yeah it was certainly within 24 hours, yeah. right? And so and, and, and so clearly the two were linked. You know, the, the Mexicans want to shut shut down Texas. Now all this mm. begs a question, of course, if the if the if the Biden regime is so concerned about the effects of illegal migration and they're begging the Mexicans to stop it. Why don't they just work with Texas? 
because Texas can stop it. I mean, Texas actually has the operational capacity and certainly the political willpower to do it. But the reason that they don't and the reason yeah. that they cooperate with a foreign government at the expense of an American state, a large American state, is because they don't feel a sense of stewardship or responsibility to the citizens of Texas, to the people of Texas. They just don't. Washington, D.C., uh, you know, writ large, simply does not care what happens to Texas. And so that, that's something that's a hard political reality that we need to understand. And so that, that's one part of the price tag is that is that the Mexicans insist that Washington, D.C. make war on Texas, which for political purposes, Washington, D.C. is only happy to do. Um, their other price tag was, uh, I believe it was $20 billion uh, to be invested, yep. which I'll put in quotes. And a, uh, basically, uh, when, you, when you look at the details it's a phony reforestation scheme for Central America. It's going to yeah. be a massive graft opportunity uh, for all the recipients involved. To help with poverty, right? To help That's with what poverty, they said, right. When we know it's going to feed corruption. We'll dump, right. We'll dump billions into some of the most corrupt societies and, and yeah. governments on earth. And, and uh, you know, th th there is a case for foreign aid, by the way, but, but right. it's, it's certainly not this. It's not 20 no. bill at the behest of the Mexican state, which is going to 1,000% uh, squander every penny it gets. Uh, so it's 20 billion invested in that. They insisted upon, and now AMLO has claimed that this was actually agreed to. I mean, I who saw knows? That, you know, he yeah. did. He went to the Monterey and he said, he said, oh, we extracted. So a lifting of the U.S. Uh, sanctions on Cuba, uh, a lifting of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, Venezuela. which is which has kind of already been done uh, in a way. Um, there, there was something else. Oh, and then uh, and then legalization oh, the 10 of, the, of, of, of 10 million illegals yeah. in the United States. And according to AMLO at his Monterey, the Americans agreed to all this. Uh, you know, I mean, who, who knows if it's true, right? I mean, yeah, I'm I don't think so. not, not super trustworthy. I don't know, though. You know, you, you say you don't think so, and you may be right. I hope you're right. I hope um, I'm right, but, too. But I, I don't trust, honestly, based on experience, I don't trust that the Biden team didn't agree to it and said, you know what, we'll slow walk it. Uh, you know, we've got to roll it out on our own time, but we will do these things. Uh, and AMLO just may have jumped the gun by by announcing it publicly. It wouldn't be unprecedented in full candor uh, for no. something like that to happen. Yeah. I so, mean, we've already seen Biden lift some of the sanctions on Venezuela. and We have. Uh, we've seen the Maduro regime do nothing about it. They still haven't arranged for free elections. And then... And they won't. And then they won't. Um, they haven't lifted the prohibition on the other candidates' mm -hmm. presidency. And then also we're seeing, this is so weird, but we're seeing the U.S. embassy in, in Cuba. Have you seen this? They're like promoting tourism and they're yes. co-hosting public concerts. When we know that that's a regime that has like a thousand, at least a thousand political prisoners in dungeons. Absolutely. So, you know. Clearly, the Biden administration. There's a president for this. Absolutely, yeah. No, no. You're so. So you're totally right. Uh, and and it is a weird confluence of ideological proclivities mm -hmm. on the parts of the progressives who rule in Washington D.C. Uh, because they genuinely empathize with the Nicaraguans and the Cubans. Mm -hmm. Um, if I haven't, I, I think I might have told the story before uh, on the podcast. So I'll keep it very, very brief. But you know, you know, kind of as a, an illumination of the mindset of these people. We actually had uh, meetings in, uh, in in Mexico with some uh, good folks who did good work, by the way. These were migration lawyers, Americans, uh, who, who did their best to help uh, migrants who get caught in human trafficking networks. And so, and so, yeah, I share the story by way of saying, like, I have tremendous respect for the work that these folks do. But their ideological priors, which are a thousand percent typical of the individuals who dominate, for example, the State Department or academia in the United States, uh, were were just so far left and so off the empirical base mm -hmm. as to um, uh, as to as as to be uh, ready for exploit by people like Amlo. And, and and what they said to us is that uh, yeah, after after we'd had this very interesting meeting, which we actually concurred on a lot of a lot of uh, items of analysis, uh, the, we were cautioned. I'll paraphrase here, but uh, but it's an accurate paraphrase. 
uh, hey, you need to understand that the United States caused all this. You know, when you look at criminality in Mexico or where you look at the state cartel synthesis or you look at govern governments that feel no sense of obligation toward their own citizenry and therefore keep them mired in poverty, it's because the United States has such a robust record of intervention going back for 200 years um, that Latin America has never been able to coalesce. And, uh, and, and, and you, you kind of listen to it and you say, yeah, okay, thanks. Thanks for your views on this. But they sincerely believe it. And so when you have this mindset that, that we are the font of original sin, like if you sincerely believe that, then if you are a State Department official and you're going to negotiate with uh, you know, SRE in Mexico or any Latin American uh, office holder, what's your reflex? Your reflex is to say, oh my gosh, you know, how can we turn over a new leaf? How can we, how can we the United States, finally acquiesce to you? And uh, look, you, you, you grew up in, in Bolivia, like, like, you know, what are they gonna do? They're gonna take advantage of that impetus, right? I mean, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be a, a good faith exchange, certainly right. not from the Mexican governmental side. Uh, and that, 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 that's just the, it's, it's incredible, I'll close with this, because I don't wanna filibuster the whole, the whole show. Um, uh, it's it's absolutely incredible, and again, you have to respect the Mexican state officials for this, for understanding it so well, for understanding the mindset so well. When you look at the objective correlation of forces, any negotiation between Mexico and the United States, the United States holds all the cards. We've said this time and time and time again. We hold all the cards, economically, you know, economically, fiscally, in terms of resources, you know, military power. If it comes to that, uh, you know, you know, analytically, the, 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 there's nothing where we don't hold an upper hand. And so, and so, in, in a sense, it it almost it could be a dictation of terms, especially mm-hmm. when the Mexican state is acting in bad faith. I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate for that as a as a perpetual state, but when you have a bad faith actor like AMLO and the Moreno regime, uh, you should think about that. Yeah. None of those advantages matter because of this self-abnegation and self-flagellation on the part of the Biden regime personnel who actually negotiate with Mexico, who right. see it as their duty to find out how they can placate the power in the regime in Mexico City uh, uh, to the benefit of that regime. And uh, whatever you wish to call it, you cannot call it governance on behalf of the American people. No, absolutely not. Just like you said, it's ironic, you know the Biden administration begging Mexico for help to stop the illegal flow of immigrants into the U.S., while, on the other hand, suing Texas that is trying to do that exact same thing. So like you said, there's no point in holding all the cards if we are not going to use them. Especially... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, No, no, no. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, this is beyond me, but Biden has to know that Mexico has no intention of stopping that flow. Like that, that's that's what's beyond me. Like, even if AMLO and Mexico wanted to, they can't because the cartels are making too much money out of it. And they have got to know that. Or, like, are they just delusional or th- is this just some sort of farce that they want to put up that they're trying to do something about the border right before the election because they can see that it's affecting the poll numbers? I, I guess I'm just is, is it ignorance? Well, I, I, I mean, I, th- I think there's multiple questions uh, in there. I mean, I mean, one one thing I think is about I, I, I think, uh, and I think you know, people, uh, people of goodwill disagree on this. I, I actually think the Mexican state could stop the migration flow uh, like that if it chose to. Sedena, the army, which is you know, let's be honest, uh, riddled with traffickers itself, um, and is highly corrupt, uh, is is still the single most powerful force within Mexico just from a force majeure standpoint. And if they chose to, they could do what they did in 2018-19 and, and shut down the illegal crossings. The, 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 the flow right now is not, is not forced upon the Mexican state. The Mexican state has chosen to acquiesce to it, uh, but it could end it uh, if it wished. So I think that's, that's part one. 
Um, part two is, is uh, I won't speculate on what the president himself, the president of the United States, does or doesn't know, but uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't place heavy bets on the robustness of his cognition uh, in any circumstance at this point. Uh, even when he was in his prime, uh, whenever that was, uh, you know, probably... <laughs> Probably, I don't think you were born uh, no. at, at that point. But uh, even, even, I mean, even when he when he was a prime, I mean, I mean, uh, President Biden uh, has been his entire public career infamous for getting things badly wrong in the foreign policy sphere. Yeah, uh, you know, just badly infamous. So add this, add this to the mix. But but you know, the the third thing, and I think I think it's worth I think it's worth illuminating here is um, is is you have to look uh, as always at the ideological roots of what we see, and on the U.S. side. The American left, uh, and I think the Western progressive left in general, has talked itself into a position where there is no moral vindication for for stopping migration of any kind, legal, illegal, whatever, for any for any purpose. That it, that, that that to move is intrinsically virtuous, and and, and the way that they've talked themselves into this, uh, which which I would argue is is an unmooring from kind of the traditional left going back, uh, because because it used to be. I say it used to be. I'm feeling my age here when I say this, but you know, I'm I'm of an age where I can remember uh, a left uh, that that actually was in many cases very concerned with a politics of place, of preserving the nature of particular communities, of you know making these communities better, of you know really rooting itself in, um, you know, say your particular Rust Belt town, your particular Southern town, or whatever. And so and so there wasn't there wasn't until I'd say the past generation, at least in the United States, I can't speak for Europe, uh, a real division. Of, of of sentiment toward place and people and the ideology and the ideology of the left. Now in Latin America, uh, they're still very tightly bound together. I mean, look at Amlo himself; he's a leftist, but he's he's very into indigenismo and right. and and that politics. So they've still got that they've still got the union here. Here it's just completely gone. And so yeah. and so when you have that, uh, it's impossible to make an argument to somebody in Washington D.C., some gray bureaucrat who you know graduates from the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Uh, and says, and you know, let's say you know, we as a Texan come up to them and say, you know, we really like to keep Texas, Texas. You know, you know, we, you know, we're 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 very open state. We're a very welcoming state. We have, I think, the fastest growing Asian population in the United States. We're forty percent, you know, Hispanic, so on. Um, but at the same time, we want to know who's coming in, and we don't want to be swamped by millions of people whom we don't know. You know, period. To them, that's a morally Ill illegitimate argument. You can't proceed from the basis of arguing for the preservation of the polity or the community or anything like that because those things simply don't have intrinsic value. And uh, there's a line to be drawn from, this is a little bit external to the ambit of the show, but there's a line to be drawn from the desire to, for example, destroy monuments. You know, They just removed a, a statue of William Penn. The famous Confederate William Penn has been removed from a uh, from an NPS property in in, in Philadelphia in the past week, uh, oh. which is which is I, I don't even know on what grounds. Apparently, it wasn't inclusive enough. But uh, you know, if a if a you know if a Quaker who establishes a colony for toleration is not good enough, uh, who is? But you know, we've seen it with, with Penn, with Jefferson, with Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and so on. Th that erasure of history is is hand in glove uh, in U.S political culture with this belief that there is no legitimate grounds for opposing migration of any kind uh, in any circumstance. And that is um, the twin destruction of both the past and the present uh, is, is the end of the nation uh, taken to its logical extreme. Wow. I thought we were over that phase of destroying statues, but I guess we're not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, no. I mean, it, it will. There was a. It was kind of a spasm of it in yeah, 2020. Like a huge but one, but yeah. it's been it's been it's been rolling like the modern era kicked off in 2015, and it's been rolling. And you know, 2020 really intensified it, uh, but it's still going on. Yeah. Uh, like those people are still out there, and the work of erasing American history, pardon me, is is for them. It's not over. 
Yeah, and it's happening more quietly now, I too, I feel. Like it's not getting a lot of attention. It's been institutionalized. I think that's the that's that's probably the right way to put it. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I know we have a lot to cover. <laughs> let's talk about what's happening in Ecuador. Um, I know that you have seen a lot of videos, you've seen a lot of articles, and our listeners probably have too, but they are de- dealing with this horrifying, just horrifying wave of violence, um, yes. including murders, including kidnapping. Uh, I mean, you've seen videos of cars being torched. There's like inmates, including um, drug lords and gang leaders escaping from prison. Um, one of those actually is uh, Ecuador's most wanted criminal. Right. No big deal. Yeah. And um, there's, you know, prisoners prison guards being taken hostage and killed executed yeah Yeah, i saw i saw this horrifying video um there's videos of all this stuff by the way um and then you know we've seen also videos of like armed men on the street they're stopping traffic i believe businesses and schools and offices in in ecuador are, are closed in the major cities yeah and then the last thing that a lot of people have probably seen this week just because it's such a shocking video is the 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 live broadcast of this TV station oh, that sure. was on air yeah. when on Tuesday in Guayaquil uh, when it was stormed and taken over by thirteen gunmen with explosives, dynamites, these long range guns. This is all on video, by the way. Yeah. This was broadcasted live for at least twenty minutes before the media employees were yeah. rescued. And so that's one thing that seems like out of a bad movie, you know. And and then. I guess police later arrived, they rescued the employees, but thankfully nobody was killed, by the way, but a cameraman got shot, um, and then someone got their arm broken. And so all of this stuff that's just happening, this prompted the new president, uh, Daniel Noboa, Mm -hmm. who just took office, he just took office in November, um, but he ran on fighting this drug-related violence, right? But this prompted him to declare a state of emergency for 60 days. That's right. Which seems, you know, oh, a state of emergency. But I think I told you this yesterday, but I looked into it and the last administration, the last president did that 22 times. Who was the last president? Was it was that uh, Correa? Was he was he the no. last president or um, was there was there one intervening? Name. So okay, well it's two of us. There then. was one yeah, I'll I'll link it or something. We apologize to the hard country listenership. We don't know the uh, previous Ecuadorian president. So oh, please go ahead. I, yeah. I might think so. of it because I, I looked into him a lot yesterday. I just can't remember right now, but um, he declared a state of emergency twenty two times with no result. Yeah. So that's very discouraging. But the current president, Novoa, he also decided that he would name 22, I think, or 24 of these gangs terrorist organizations, yes. which I found very fascinating. That's very interesting. But what a lot of people don't know, again, is that this violence is not new. Um, in 2022, which is a lifetime ago, mm-hmm. Ecuador became one of the top 10 most violent countries in like Latin America and Central America, Caribbean. Yeah. And in 2023, they had their bloodiest year ever, and they are now in that top three. Yeah. Um, I think they might still be counting the numbers, but it looks like they're going to be in the top three most violent countries. And you and I discussed uh, back in the fall the the execution of one of the presidential candidates in Mexico yeah. who was running on an anti-cartel platform at the time. And the, uh, we believe the Choneros uh, yeah. killed him at the behest of the Mexican Sinaloans. Because they're linked Correct. somehow. And actually, yeah. the leader of the Choneros is the one that recently escaped from right. prison. I think they call him Fito. 
um, Jose Adolfo Macias Villamar, and he is still at large. Okay. Where I, yeah, it's huge state of emergency because nobody knows where he is. It's a state of war throughout the country, is what uh, Noboa yeah. said. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's terrible. And I, I the reason I'm bringing this up is I also want to compare it to what's happening in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, like Mexico has long also been plagued by this narco terrorism and all of this violence and naturally amlo felt compelled to comment on what's going on in ecuador of course. um and he he came out to talk about it you know sent his support for the current president and um called all of the violence going on um he called, he called it, it vandalistic didn't... attitudes yes which is absolutely amazing. And then- That's quite a description for light infantry actions in the middle of your capital city. Right? Yeah, and, right. <laughs> well, and I thought it was interesting because the current president of Ecuador is doing, I think exactly what AMLO has done in, like exactly the opposite of what AMLO has done in Mexico, but they seem to be friends, like they seem to support one another, which I think is very interesting. But the president of Ecuador has completely declared a war on mm-hmm. these gangs and these cartels. Like he has not hesitated to say that they're terrorist organizations. Um, there's a lot of violence in the streets because they're trying so hard to fight them. Whereas AMLO has this, of course, we know like his hugs, not bullets policy. Right, right. And so I just thought that was fascinating, one. And then two, I guess back in September, the U.S. and Ecuador reached some sort of agreement where Ecuador agreed to intervention. Did you know that? It, there was I hadn't these... heard the uh, intervention, uh, uh, they, but they've had like some kind of military and military cooperation going on for a while now. I, but what are the details? Yeah, and Ecuador right. is asking for help. Well, last September, there's there's pictures. You know, the, the last president came and met um, in Washington D.C. with a lot of lawmakers. I think some of them were the House Cartel Task Force, which you testified in front of. Okay. I didn't know this. Apparently, it was done very quietly, um, but um, they struck a deal that would allow the U.S. in case that it was needed to send military forces to Ecuador by land and also um, off the coast. So, you know, like I said, I think it was done very quietly. And I don't think that the State Department made any of the agreements public, but I read an article on it, which I will link. And it was confirmed that the there's a the, the, the status of forces agreements, which would allow members of our military to go into Ecuador. And then there was a maritime law enforcement agreement. And it was confirmed that this, this was signed, right? But the second agreement would allow military vessels from the U.S. to be present in those waters off of the northwestern coast. A status of force, uh, you know, I, I, I speak, I speak without having researched this. Um, uh, but you know, one of these, one of the, one of the kind of the constant phenomena when, when stuff like this is, is, is signed, uh, you know, you know, there's typically a SOFA, sorry, uh, like a, like a status of forces agreement, um, uh, when there's going to be, uh, any kind of like a rotational presence through, uh, uh, any, any third country. So like the host country will have a status of force agreement to cover, um, you know, kind of legal status of American forces there, what they can and can't do. Um, uh, but but it's usually a lot more benign okay. than, yeah. than, than people think. Like if it's a training mission or something like that, like, hey, whose jurisdiction does it fall under? You know, what's the cap on the number of people there? So I guess I, I, guess I would have oh, to see Oh, that's good it. background. I, yeah, I didn't I would know be, that. I, I would be very surprised. I'm not saying it's wrong. I would be very surprised if Ecuador had agreed to um, allow the United States to police Ecuador. Uh, it would be... Yeah, it would be interesting. That would but, be interesting. But I, 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 but but I doubt it. Anyway, sorry. So please go on. I didn't mean to no, interrupt. I, yeah. I, I just found it fascinating because I think that regardless, like Ecuador has asked the U.S. for help, and I was looking this up, and yes, 
No, in December, Ecuador said back then that it was expecting to seal a deal with the U.S. Um, to get like security equipment and okay. support so that they could fight these gangs and and fight these cartels. And at the time, they said it was going to be two hundred million um, in December. Again, when a lot of us weren't paying attention. Sure. Um, but yesterday, I saw an article saying that Ecuador's president had just announced that he received a pledge of aid from the U.S. Um, to help contain all the terror that's going on in Ecuador. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much it is. I don't think it's yet been announced. Um, we'll update the listeners. But I just, reading this, this was very fascinating to me because I don't think that this is something that Mexico would ever do. You know, they are just so defensive of their sovereignty. They're so opposed to like the U.S. helping with fight the terror in Mexico in any way. So right. I just found the contrast interesting. It is, and I mean, I mean, the 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 purposes and the details, right? Uh, which, which, uh, again, uh, in, in full candor, I don't know uh, on this one. Ecuador, Ecuador is that like the the Ecuadorian state has been playing footsie with some pretty malign forces for a long time, yeah. and obviously, you know, President Novo is new, so he doesn't bear any particular responsibility for it. Uh, but the Ecuadorians, you know, under under Correa, which I guess was two administrations ago, maybe I three. Think so. Um, uh, sent Ecuador lurching into this very leftward direction, uh, and Ecuador ended up hosting uh, a variety of Colombian guerrilla groups. You know, there was a there was like a, a scan scandal is probably not the right word, but there was a diplomatic confrontation between Colombia and Ecuador about a decade or so back. I don't mm -hmm. remember the exact year in which the which the Colombians actually killed the Colombian guerrilla commander, like a wanted man, on Ecuadorian soil. Um, uh, and so you know, the Colombians claimed they didn't know, but they did, uh, and they just chose to do it because the Ecuadorian state was consciously hosting these individuals. Um, and so, and so, unfortunately, the people of Ecuador are now reaping the consequences of uh, the Ecuadorian state's decision to accommodate and engage with this array of leftist guerrilla forces, which are indistinguishable from criminal cartels uh, at this point. And so, what you're seeing uh, now. In, uh, I mean, let's call it what it is: small-scale civil war at this point. Could oh yeah, be, could become a big one. Um, uh, is is it's it's part of a process that we've already seen unfold elsewhere. We've seen it, uh, and it doesn't map one to one, but we've seen it in a different sense in Mexico. We've seen it in a different sense in Honduras. We've seen it in a different sense in Guatemala. Um, uh, now it's on. We've seen it in Venezuela. Uh, so it's it's just metastasizing region wide, right? And you see it even in Jamaica, uh, you know, which is an English speaking, uh, you know, former British colony. So so it is it is a it's it's a civic disease, Haiti as well. Yeah, it's a civic disease. It's affecting the entire region. Um, you know, one one of the th this is another consequence uh, in in my view of the United States' failure to exercise strategic hegemony over the region. Um, state breakdown shouldn't be happening in Latin America at this point, but it has been now really since, depending on where you want to count it, uh, and set aside the case of Haiti, which I think is a special case, um, uh, but, 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 but it has been happening for the past 20 years or so. And there's never been any kind of a strategic response to it. There's never been this kind of realization that the United States set aside the interest, but I think this is also true of the interest of like the individual citizen of any country in Latin America requires strong sovereign states, you know, throughout the region, you know, states that actually exercise effective control over their citizenry, their population and their borders. And that's been allowed to go by the wayside. So I'm, I, uh, you know, you know, when you look at what's happening in Ecuador and you look particularly at Daniel Noboa's declaration of war and the state of emergency, which is definitely not going to end in 60 days, mm. um, uh, and, and the use of the armed forces, there's two, there's two pathways for him, right? 
actually, yeah, no, there's two pathways for him. It can either be the Mexico 2006 pathway, um, in which Felipe Calderon also called in, uh, Sedena called in the army and the armed forces against the cartels, and it plunges the nation into decades of intermittent and sanguinary warfare for the rest, which is exactly what's happened to Mexico. That's one pathway. Another pathway, plausible pathway, I'm not saying these are the only two, but I'd say these are the plausible ones, is what seems to be happening in El Salvador with Nayib Bukele, who has you know, locked up. I don't. Uh, do you remember what the proportion is? Like five percent of all. It's. Ugh. I mean, the proportion of El Salvadorians behind bars yeah. is is staggering. Like it's a huge. It's a huge proportion. It's like two, three, five percent, something like that. Um, but I, I read again. I, I can't speak from firsthand experience. We probably need to go at some point and just see it, um, because El Sal. It, it's interesting. El Salvador and sort of the like the the American movement conservative mentality. Is 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 kind of assuming a place in the firmament akin to uh, where Hungary reposes in the in the minds of a lot of our DC friends, which is like this is the small country that's done it right. I, I don't know if El Salvador has done it right or not, but I do know that they've they've gone all in on militarization, mass incarceration, and supposedly uh, El Salvador is safer than it's ever been. Which, if true, great. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly you know, you know Noboa himself has has praised Bukele uh, before. I wonder if that's what he's going for. Now to do that requires a tremendous amount of organization and it requires an armed forces that you can trust. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't know enough about Ecuador to say whether that's there or not, but it really, really bears watching because what's happening in Ecuador um, can easily happen uh, in almost every other country of the continent. I mean, tell me if you disagree with that. I, I don't think, I, I, you know, I, uh, if, if I had to think through, probably not Brazil, probably not like the big three, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, um, but you could see it given a sufficient push in a in a Peru or a Colombia or actually I'll ask you your, your your own specific area of expertise. How vulnerable would Bolivia be to uh, to a series of events like this, given given sufficiently bad government, which Bolivia has had? Yeah. Yes. Well, I that's terrifying, first of all, to think of. But you know, we've never been close to that. I know there was like a lot of civil unrest with the elections in 2019 right um this is a long time from there and i think this takes a long time to build up right sure. what's happening in ecuador has been happening for a very long time yes but like you said i don't think any country is immune to it yeah. and i do think i've seen statements about how novoa is planning to do something very similar to what's happened um to, to what bukele did to what happened in el salvador so okay we will see. Um, in fact, I I, um, I saw that he is going to involve like the armed forces in fighting cartels. I don't know if you saw that. And well, it's, part I of, it's part of his declaration. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, one of is, his yeah. plans. But I saw an article that kind of made me chuckle a little bit in El, Finan El Financiero mm -hmm. yesterday. And it was titled, Ecuador quiere aplicar la receta AMLO y pedirá que militares puedan combatir el crimen. <laughs> and that to me was kind of funny because I was like, where are people getting this impression that AMLO is like actually trying to fight the cartels? But I'm sure AMLO loves being uh, linked with militarization of the anti-cartel strategy. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Yeah. But so since we're speaking of Mexico, we can go back to that before we close. But I just found it sad because what's happening in Ecuador is like truly heartbreaking. But it's been happening right here like our neighbors are going through it in yeah. mexico and there's so much violence there just this week and i think last week too i'll tell you about some of the some of the terrible stories that i've seen really quick i'll summarize them okay but 30 people were killed in chiapas because of a clash 
between the CJNG and the Sinaloa cartels. Five medical students were found dead inside a vehicle with signs of torture. Uh, four by bystanders were f shot um, at, while they were at a hair salon. Uh, five people, or 11 people, were killed by criminals at a holiday party. Mm. Nine bodies were recently found in San Juan del Rio in Querétaro in the trunks of two vehicles. In Querétaro. Yeah, I'm going there in like two weeks. Good so. heavens. Um, but late, so again, this late last week, there was this drug cartel. I don't know if you've seen these videos that attacked this remote community in Guerrero. Oh, this is um, the drone attack. The drone attack, yes, yeah, with please. drones yes. and with gunmen. Yes. Um, and it's believed that at least 30 people were killed. Mm -hmm. And what's really sad is this hasn't been confirmed because authorities have not been able to go into this area. Oh, yeah. It's this remote area. Yeah. But it's believed that... Um, these people, it's the Elidoro Castillo community, were just caught in, in this like escalating war that's happening between La Familia Michoacana and the Jalisco New Generation cartel. Just so, imagine the sophistication of the cartels uh, mounting a drone attack that kills 30 people. 30 people. Uh, in a small community. I mean, that's, that's, that, that is, that's Ukrainian front stuff. And this is the same community where back in October, a police chief um, and 13 other policemen were ambushed and killed. Mm. So it's not uncommon. It's not like a newsflash story. We're going back and forth between all of these terrible cases. We can't even keep up with how many horrible things are happening in Mexico. And I just think it's it's not any different than what's happening in Ecuador, but we here we see AMLO in his mañanera just sending, like, just showing so much pity, right, for Ecuador and sending this, like, this hope for, for peace to be reestablished in their country where, like... Sure. What does about he his? not realize? Yeah, does, does he not realize what's happening in his? And not just the violence, but less than 4% of these, of these criminal investigations that we have in Mexico are ever solved. That operational sophistication, uh, you know, uh, how long does it take to drive to Guerrero? It's about 11 hours, right? I think so. Uh, I think so. I mean, assuming that you did not have narco checkpoints. So we're not recommending to our viewers to drive to Guerrero. Uh, I just want to be really clear. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know, 11 hours maybe? Uh, I, I would need to map it out. Um, so it's, it's, it's Beaumont to El Paso. Uh, you could drive there. So just imagine that within driving distance of, of, of your home, you've got these personnel who have benefited from, uh, I mean, I mean, take your pick, uh, operational expertise from that's indigenous, from within Mexico, from Hezbollah trainers, from Wagner Group trainers, mm -hmm. from the array of Middle Eastern contacts that we know that the cartels have, and uh, they're building drone swarms that uh, you know conduct a massacre. The drones uh, in uh, in a small town, as they continue to lose respect for and fear of the United States, uh, the chances rise asymptotically. I think that that comes here. And, you know, I'll end with this, but people are getting really sick of it. Um, they're starting to take matters into their own hands. I don't Mexicans know if you are. saw. Yeah, Mexicans okay, are. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw this story, but this month there there was this story and there's a video, too. Um, there's a partly a video, but there was these campesinos, these farmers in central Mexicans in central Mexico. They were just fed up. And they unleashed all of their fury on these gang members that came into their land and tried to extort them. Did yeah, you see this story? I, uh, I saw the news story. I don't know if there was. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. They used rifles and they used machetes to chase down and kill, and they did kill ten mm. members of this local cell of the the 
the Michoacan family sure. cartel. Mm. And so some of it was caught on video again, but people in social media that were seeing this video and these reports were like celebrating it, right? Because it's this story about these regular citizens that triumphed over their oppressors, right? But, you know, it's just really sad. Like I started thinking about it and the fact that they had to do that and take matters into their own hands because we have, they have a government that's derelict Right. Kind of like we are, right? Yeah. In Texas, yeah, there's a lot of sim yeah. similarities there. I think that's more of a tragedy than a victory, that they can't count on the, their authorities to protect them. These the, the, these defenses, uh, you know, these local self-defense groups uh, have been around for, for, for several years now uh, in, in places like Michoacan and Guerrero and, and uh, elsewhere in Mexico. And it, it seems like... Um, I'll overgeneralize a little bit, but one one of one of three things happens to them, uh, or really one of two things happens to them. They either become criminal organizations themselves because then they become mm -hmm. the power holders that are local uh, and link up with one of the one of the rival uh, major cartels. Very common. Uh, or uh, we saw this, I believe, in Michoacan seven or eight years ago. D David Ogren, by the way, did the the key reporting on this. Um, uh, the the federal government rolls in and suppresses them on behalf of the cartels with whom they work. Uh, so so I, 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 don't, I don't applaud you know, what could possibly describe as a lynching, right? Because I, I haven't right. seen the video or anything like that. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, we should be aware that the, that the history of these in Mexico is not a happy one and that even if they succeed and are wholly virtuous, um, the state will crush them down. Uh, and that, that too is part of the tragedy of Mexico. Well, we'll see so. what happens. I know we have a presidential election coming up, not just in the U.S., but in Mexico. In and June. it seems like the one coming up in Mexico, there's a there's a single issue that people are voting on, and that's security. Um, I hope that's the case. Do, do, do we know that? Do we have evidence that that's the case, that they're voting on security? Or Because you know, security has always been, in, in, in previous Mexican elections, uh, it's, it's there, but it's never the surpassing issue that one might think. I think at this point, like violence has become so huge that a lot of people are voting on security okay. um, and what they can do against the drug cartels. But I have to look up polling on yeah, it. Yeah, we'd, we'd have but to I get some But I keep hearing that. So I don't want to. I don't want to end the show uh, without without putting you on the spot uh, a little <laughs> bit. A little bit, Melissa. You know, you, we we had a we had a robust conversation over the past twenty four hours of uh, <laughs> popular music. Uh, in in Latin America, which apparently I know nothing about, which is fine. I'm happy to know nothing about it. Uh, but uh, who's who's big right now? What are the what are the young people listening to? Okay, I'll tell you. Go ahead. Peso Pluma is huge right now. Do you know who that is? Uh, I have no idea who Peso Pluma is. I'll tell you, is. at least in like Latin from? America. So he's from Mexico. He's from Sinaloa. Oh, he's from Sinaloa. And okay. I believe... Is, is, is he a narco corrido guy? Is that, is that his... Uh... Actually, you should look it up. I believe there's ties. <laughs> of course. Okay, please. Yeah. yeah. But, but but I was telling Josh at the beginning, for our listeners that weren't here, we were talking about how big corridos have gotten everywhere. Mexican-style corridos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in the last year, maybe even less, maybe like in the past eight to ten months, Mexico Mexican-style corridos have become huge. Everyone's listening to them. All the artists that were doing like reggaeton and other kinds of musics are now like, they're, they're shifting a little bit towards the corridos, rancheros. What's driving that? I have no is it, idea. Is it because it's associated with with uh, you know like like the like the like the very alluring like criminal lifestyle and it's, no because that's that, always been the case. It's always been the case. Yeah, well, it has, I, reggaeton you know, benefited from that too actually, but uh, but uh, but no, it's just so so Mexican cultural dominance is is having a moment. Is that right? Yeah, I think part of it was like the big artists started doing like a couple of collaborations. So Bad Bunny did his um, collaboration with Grupo Frontera. 
needed this song that everyone started listening to and then Peso Pluma became huge and he only does like corridos. Where's Bad Bunny from? He's from Puerto Rico. From Puerto Rico, okay, okay. And so I think that like people started listening to that and they were like, where can we get more? So now like everyone, I was telling you, even like people that normally do reggaeton, like Maluma, Carol G, they're doing this style of music because it's so big. And you you were going to be at a Carol G concert yeah. in Mexico <laughs> yes. uh, uh, shortly. That's amazing. It, it, it's just a whole group of of, uh, of artists. I mean, I personally know nothing about. Yeah. I will continue to know very little about, honestly, but I am interested in the... Um, uh, the fact that the corrido has become it's become huge big. the first time I heard my husband David listening sure. to it I was like turn that off what are you doing because it's just like it's so rare it's not the kind of music that we used to listen to and just and, and just for the listeners he's he's Bolivian also yeah Bolivian yes, right, and I was yeah, like what are yeah. you listening to and it was Peso Pluma who at the time wasn't so famous um, the third time I heard it I was like turn it up <laughs> okay yeah so now it's become I, I found it fascinating because, as you know, like I was in Bolivia for New Year. I was in Bolivia for Christmas. And when we would go out, that's like all we would hear. Interesting. Yeah. It's, there's, a, there's a shift happening. So as, as, uh, as I shared with you, I feel, I feel mildly proud that, uh, that I discovered Shakira before she came to the United States yeah. <laughs> uh, from, from uh, founder in Nicaragua, uh, actually, back when she was just a Colombian yeah. artist. Uh, before I, I, she was I, huge. I want to state for the record, though, to all the listeners, uh, I'm not really a fan of Shakira's English language, like post, post big work. But, but Donde Están Las Ladrones? Great album. Great right. album, early early one. But all which say, so is she like the? Uh, she must be like an elder stateswoman now. Uh, Shakira. For, for I mean, that was twenty five years ago, right? No, she's still huge. She's still gigantic. She's still huge. Interesting. Yeah, people okay. still like eat up everything that she puts out, and she has been putting out really good music recently. Okay, so you're a fan. Oh, for sure. Okay. okay. She is. She will always be the best. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you heard it here in every stage. Let me let, let me just put in a plug for uh, the Chilean Ana Tihu and her 2014 album Vengo, which oh, is which is fantastic. Anyway, the listeners can judge who has better taste, but it's it's probably Melissa. <laughs> um, thanks for the show. Thank you, Josh. That was a good episode, and thank you everyone for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs>